Hi there, welcome back to the business side of fitness. This is your host, Vanessa Severiano. Each week on the show, we'll highlight fitness industry experts to learn about their personal journey and unique perspective. Through these conversations, we'll learn all about what it really takes to succeed in fitness. This show is brought to you by Vanessa Severiano LLC, specializing in fitness and wellness business development for impactful brands. The time has come to start the show. Everyone's got a story, and now it's time to hear from this week's guest. Let's welcome to the show, Michael Abramson. He's a three-time national champion for USA Powerlifting, a licensed attorney, an advisory board member for the California Fitness Alliance, and chief revenue officer at Exponential Fitness. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on. I'm thrilled to have you here because you have this really interesting background, and I'd love for you to just share a little bit about what led you into the world of fitness. It's not too often that you hear somebody that is an attorney and then is also involved in the worlds of fitness. So I just love for you to kind of set the stage for us and share a little bit about your background. Sure. Yeah. So I was born into fitness. My dad is a world champion powerlifter. He won nationals and states all through the 80s and 90s. And then he won the Worlds in 95 in both the drug-tested and non-drug-tested divisions. So I kind of grew up in the gym. And then when I got out of law school, I worked in-house for a Fortune 100 company, was bored as shit doing that. It was terrible. I had to wear a suit every day, which I absolutely hate. My wife loves when I wear a suit. I hate it. So every once in a while, I'll throw one on just for her. But outside of that, doesn't happen. I ended up starting my own law firm with, with actually my lifting partner from law school. He was my mentor in law school and I coached him in lifting. He was the president of the Chicago Bar Association. He's probably 12 to 15 years older than me. He's He was general counsel for multiple billion dollar insurance companies. And so he helped me navigate the legal profession. I coached him in powerlifting. He knew who my dad was. He had heard of me. He was an alum of my law school. And we started our own firm together after a little bit. And I ended up getting D1 training as a client. And that helped me marry the world of performance training and law together. And it was a real pivotal moment in my career. And so what was your first job in fitness? I was a personal trainer for the New York Sports Club when I was actually, no, let's go back even further. When I was in high school, I used to clean gym equipment at the gym I worked out at. I was pro fitness. Now it's Fitness Factory owned by Dennis Cherry. Yeah, I used to clean gym equipment. That was, I was probably 14, 15, 16 doing that. And then when I was in college, I was a personal trainer, not a good one, but a personal trainer nonetheless. So I've been in the business for a long time. I love that. It's so funny. My oldest son is turning 15 this summer and he's getting his first job. And I'm like, why don't you work in a gym, work the front desk in a gym or something? He's no, I have no interest in working in the fitness industry. (laughs) It breaks my heart, but you never know. Uh, Even if you don't work in the fitness industry, it's great people skills. It's great sales skills. It teaches you humility, especially when you're cleaning shit up after people and you're frustrated that Can you not put the weight away? You took it out. What is wrong with you? It's 10 pounds. Put it back on the rack. You learn to deal with people. 
And, and being able to deal with all different walks of life, I feel is a skill set that would carry with you no matter what your profession is. It doesn't mean you have to stay in the fitness industry. It's just a life skill. Okay. So you were recently the COO and now you moved to the CRO at Expo. How has your role shifted, like your responsibilities and what attracts you? Obviously CRO, you're in charge of all the revenue. So I'm assuming in a sale, overseeing a sales capacity as well. And I just like to hear a little bit more about how your role shifted and why. Yeah. So when I came to Expo, I came over from D1. I was president of D1 when I came here and I've got a real execution oriented mind, but I'm really good at relationship development and value creation out of those relationships. I think a lot of it comes from, and hopefully this is my reputation. I actually don't look at most relationships as transactional. I like to invest in them. And oftentimes there are great ways to develop revenue opportunities from them. And while I was performing my duties as COO, I was also doing lots of uh, system-wide revenue deals with whether it was uh, United Healthcare, American Specialty, Class. There were all these different things I was structuring And I think the company looked at it and said, highest and best use of our cash, i.e. Mike's time and salary is put him on deal creation and revenue development full time, which I love because I love doing deals. I love the I love doing negotiating, developing partnerships, having fidelity to execution and helping everyone win in the ecosystem. And so my role changed from being more operation execution oriented to strategic value creation and looking at different verticals we haven't been in yet. And how do we start bolting that onto our ecosystem, which is pretty robust. I look at Expo a little differently than I think a lot of other people. And Anthony, our founder, I think he agrees with me. People look at us and say, we're in the fitness business. I actually don't think Expo is in the fitness business. We're in the distribution business. Our franchisees and our franchisors are in the fitness business, but Expo has 2,000 points of distribution, and we need to look at what products do we want to allow into our distribution network. And so I'm working on that type of uh, mentality. Oh, and I'm sure with having all those distribution points, I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong, nine brands and 1700 locations. I'm sure you get your door knocked on all day long. Everybody wants access and wants that distribution. And you just have, you've, you're covering so many different verticals in fitness. How do you think this impacts the rest of the industry? The fact that Expo covers so many different verticals under one umbrella. I think we set the trends and we're filling up the space. So unfortunately, with the pandemic, a lot of other facilities didn't do as well as our concepts did. We actually opened 240 and change locations between March of uh, last year and April of this year, which the industry saw probably about 20% of their locations shutter. So we were the antithesis of that. There's a, as we talk about internally, everyone's been leaning back. This is our time to lean forward. And so we're, we are continuing to take 
take up space in a positive way and help our franchisees continue growing. And then as we start structuring things like we have now in the market, something called XPass, which is basically class pass, but just for exponential brands. It's a concept that I think other multi-brand concepts are going to start following, not as a competitor to ClassPass, because I think ClassPass has a has a great spot in the industry, but as a way to maximize franchisee uh, value and create longevity in the lifetime value and how long a member stays part of the expo ecosystem. What do you think it is about your brand or about your system that allowed you to actually expand, acquire, you opened up all these locations, you acquired Rumble. How are you able to expand during this time when everybody else was reeling from the impact of COVID? What do you think it was that made you stand out there? I think if you look at the leadership team, especially led by Anthony, Anthony's a fighter. He's aggressive. He sets the rules of the game for himself ahead of time, and he tries to operate according to that unflinchingly. And so when the pandemic came, it just threw another variable in, but didn't change the rules of the game. And so we just continued as a leadership team to lean forward and to lead aggressively. We saw it as an opportunity to accelerate our virtual as well as other, whether it's our nutritional, our online retail, whatever it was, we saw it as ways to accelerate those offerings and come alongside of our franchisees to keep their membership bases intact in a unique way that will persist even after the pandemic's been alleviated. So speaking of the pandemic being alleviated, I think that the pandemic made us all take a hard look at ourselves. I know I personally was just always in go mode. And then all of a sudden I'm stuck inside my house with my family, probably driving my family (laughs) crazy, (laughs) but it did make me look and kind of reevaluate my life instead of just like going on autopilot. I'm thinking like, am I aligned with my values? Am I living, you know, the life that I want to be living? And I think a lot of people did that. So I'm just curious, do you see an uptick in franchise requests or inquiries? Because I'm wondering if a lot of people looked at themselves and said, what am I doing in this job that I don't love? I want to run you know, a business that I'm passionate about. And when people think of the fitness industry, the fitness industry is passion-based. So I'm just curious as right. to if you've seen any correlation there with franchises. Yeah, we definitely have. And I just think Franchising in general has seen an incredible uptick since the pandemic started because you have all these C-suite refugees that want to run their own gig but don't want to start it from scratch. And so franchise partnership is the way to be. And I think the pandemic highlighted the need for a healthy public because the healthier you are or more fit you are, the less likely you are to have a severe reaction to COVID. Now, it's, it's not important possible, obviously. Science is changing every other minute on on that. But ultimately, people that were passionate about it already or are growth-minded, I think, leaned into fitness. So we definitely saw a correlating response to franchise inquiries. And I think sometimes people have like franchising can be a mixed bag, right? Sometimes franchising has a really, there are some franchises that have a great reputation for really supporting franchisees. And then there are some franchises that are not a bait and switch, but they just don't offer 
tremendous support. So I think one thing that I really impressed by with Expo is that you're leading this class action lawsuit against Arch Insurance. And I think for business interruption and not covering that loss in business. And I think that that kind of can open the doorway for so many small businesses and so many other people to recover some of those losses during times that were closed. So do you want to speak a little bit about what you're doing there with that class action lawsuit? Sure. Yeah. So it's actually the the largest of its kind ever. We have about 1,100 people in the intended class or 1,100 studios rather. And uh, we have a special program with Arch Insurance with with a specific exponential endorsement. It didn't have viral and bacterial exclusions in the business interruption program, which was really a standard provision since about 2006, since the since SARS came out. And we looked at it and we've been seeing a real change in judicial temperament where they're saying that which isn't excluded is included because policies need to be strictly construed against the carrier. And so we looked at our policy that was effectively a template policy across 1100 studios and said, we need to take up the mantle and provide air cover for our franchisees. They're they're providing ground cover for themselves, but we need to provide air cover. We then utilized our relationships and we grabbed two really strong firms, Howard and Sherman and Howard. The Howards aren't related. How it happened that way, who knows? And one's in Colorado, one's in Chicago. And we we worked with them. They're actually taking it on contingency because they believe so strongly in the claim. Dan Cotter, who was my mentor from law school and my training partner, he's the Howard and Howard advocate. And then Chris Mosley at Sherman and Howard, they're leading the charge on this. And they looked at it. Dan is one of the most well-respected technical attorneys in the insurance world. And Chris is a respected insurance litigator. And we are, I think, going to see a real dent in the insurance carrier's position, not just for us, but for lots of other studios, maybe even outside of the fitness uh, industry. And I continue to track positive policyholder decisions, and you're seeing more and more motions to dismiss by insurance carriers rejected and policyholders getting into the discovery phase and actually getting into The litigation, there was a case against Cincinnati Insurance in North Carolina a month or two ago that the judge actually brought out Webster's Dictionary and said, if you don't define the phrase due to or damage, let's look at what the dictionary says. And they went with the plain text reading and decided against uh, Cincinnati Insurance. Now it's being appealed, but I actually think Cincinnati Insurance is in a world of shit right now with that type of uh, decision against it. The uh, trend is really starting to move. If I were a listener, this is not legal advice, I would file for business interruption insurance regardless of whether or not there was a viral or bacterial exclusion in my policy or not. You want Technically, you want to have the denial notice so that you have a ripe claim in the event that you actually want to pursue litigation ahead of in the future. So that's my recommendation to everyone. That is not legal advice. <laughs> I love the disclaimer, but I I do think that, you know, what you're doing just because the the sheer size of Expo and the brand that you can really help 
the rest of the industry if you're able to make headway here. And just the fact that you have already filed this class action lawsuit sets the precedent and it really just helps out other businesses in the industry. So I I really appreciate that. Out of curiosity, so many fitness brands during the pandemic really leaned into digital and there were so many articles and conversations. Digital is the new wave. Everybody's going digital. Just curious to hear as now so many of the states are up and running and back open and we're returning to normal. Are you seeing a downtick in digital and an uptick in the in-person? Like are people returning to studios and continuing to access their digital or are they just falling up? I personally never looked at a nap again once I started going back to the studio. To me, it's in-person is where it's at, but everybody's different. So I'm just curious to see what trend you're noticing. Yeah, we're definitely, the virtual side hasn't fallen off, but we're definitely seeing an uptick as restrictions continue to lessen, vaccinations and or comfort in venturing out into public improve. You're seeing the in-studio just continue to increase. I think virtual will always be here. At-home workouts will always be here. It's been here since the 70s with Nautilus. But the issue is with most people, They lack the internal drive to work out at home. If they had it, gyms would have gone out of business 30 years ago. And I think it's now just a really nice option to have the ability to train at home versus going into a studio for when you're on the road or you just don't have time. But people prefer going into a studio and being around others. It's Training in a studio is, and even in a regular big box gym, is more about the community than it is even about the actual workout in most instances, because that community drives you to work out. For me, it's all about the competition. I like see, like, I would never push myself that. I mean, you're a champion powerlifter. So obviously you have a lot of drive. Me, I'm not that motivated when I'm next to somebody else though. And I see that they're pulling more meters on the rower or they're running faster than me. That gets me going. <laughs> yep. And just seeing it on a virtual leaderboard, that can do it for a little bit of time, but typically the extrinsic motivation dies down and then you have to actually be in it to really get the maximum value. Now, I'm there with you. But I got into, I don't have this incredible intrinsic motivation. I got into it because I didn't want my dad to be embarrassed about me because I was little growing up. I wrestled 103 my freshman year of high school, 112. My dad was a 275, 242 pounder. So I got into powerlifting just because I didn't want him to be ashamed of me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we all pull our motivation from different places. So Michael, tell me a little bit about your team. I really think that the success of so many businesses isn't even the product or the price or the service. It's really the team behind those things. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about your team, how you assembled your team and and how you lead them. Sure. So we have 10 teams that merge into one team because you've got nine consumer-facing brands, and then you have Exponential. And so Exponential has a significant amount of team members on it itself. And so they all coalesce into one overarching team. The way way it works from the brand presidents 
all the way up. We always look for people that had aggressive fitness experience and leadership experience. You look at Sarah Luna, the president of Exponential now, and previously she was the president of Pure Bar. Before that, she was SVP of sales for Club Pilates. She started her career as a uh, professional dancer, non-erotic. <laughs> I always feel like you have to make that disclaimer because when you say someone's a professional dancer, it just... You just need to save people's <laughs> minds from it. I'm sure she hates it when I say that. That she then actually was a well-respected one-on-one Pilates instructor and then came onto the club Pilates team early on. And we look for people with actual grassroots experience in fitness. Our senior leadership team all has grassroots leadership experience from being general managers and district managers of 24-hour fitness locations to working inside of other wellness concepts like the joint or uh, true fusion or whatever. And so we really wanted to make sure we had a foundation in fitness because it's it's really a lifestyle that you have to be sold on. It needs to be part of what you do because that will emanate through the rest of your team. You can have a fitness brand, doesn't matter how big the company is, and have the team be comprised of people that don't believe in fitness in general, that don't work out. And so we look for that. And then we look for those nuts and bolts pieces, knowing that we could develop the culture and the acumen, so long as they were high character folks, they could grow into whatever role and lean into the future of where Expo was going. Because um, we started with just one brand with Club Pilates, and we acquired all the other brands over the last four years. So it was a quick, growth to where we are now. So we needed people with high character and uh, quick learning curves. I really appreciate that you look for people with a fitness background. One thing that kind of makes me crazy. And then I'm like, maybe I'm jaded because I've been in the industry for 20 years and I'm like, Hey, what about us? But when I see all these businesses, I feel like there's so many startups right now, specifically in digital fitness, but not even just, and they're all run by people with tech backgrounds, not, or like an MBA, which I don't discount that obviously education is King, but, but no fitness business experience. And I just think the customer, the wants and needs of the customer is something that might be a little bit difficult to understand if you've never actually serviced that customer before. Yeah, I agree with that. The only exception or a caveat I would make is if there's someone like say Eric Rosen, the new lead owner in CrossFit, right? He was hardcore into CrossFit before he led the acquisition from Greg Glassman. I work with his team on the gyms on the gyms act every week. So I've gotten to know them and him pretty well. If you if it's part of your lifestyle already, it's helpful because you are the end user. You are missing the service component uh, of it. But hopefully you're open minded enough to listen to those around you that do have that. If you don't, you're probably a terrible leader, maybe a good manager, but a terrible leader. So yeah, I think what from what I've seen, so long as you're open-minded and you have a good team, you're in a good spot. And tell us a little bit more about where we are with the Gyms Act right now. What's the latest update there? Yeah, so the Gyms Act is actually crushing it right now. It's not getting a lot of headlines. We have, when I last looked, we had over 130 co-sponsors in the house on the bill. It was introduced on the Senate floor a month or so ago by uh, Senator Duckworth and a Republican counterpart, 
who name is escaping me. So hopefully I don't get backlash on that. We have a number of Senate co-sponsors now. It continues to grow. We are still working on getting more Senate co-sponsors, but it is effectively following the path that the Save Our Stages bill took. It's a $30 billion grant relief bill for fitness studios based on rev discrepancies between 2020 and 2019. It'll get touched up a little bit in committee as it goes through. It's being led through a coalition. There's really three different groups. The Community Gyms Coalition is probably the tip of the arrow. That's what we're a part of. We're Expo or myself is one of the founding members. It's us. Anytime Fitness, Mind Body, CrossFit LLC, Planet Fitness, Orange Theory. I think that's it. I'm always terrible at counting those. It, so that's the Community Gyms Coalition. We've been working at it for seven, eight months, nine months now. Holland and Knight is our public affairs firm. Firehouse is our PR agency. We have been working like crazy on this bill for a long time. We're doing it in tandem with URSA is the largest association of health and fitness clubs out there, but they're very broad and less focused than, than we are. We're probably a little bit more narrow-minded because we just have less constituents to work with. And then the IFA, the International Franchise Association, has put their lobbying team, particularly Matt Haller, behind it. And so we're getting a lot of attention. We're getting a lot of well-known advocates. We did a clubhouse a couple months ago to talk about it. We had Keeb Tlaib, NFL Pro Bowler, Super Bowl champion, Sean Merriman, all the founders or CEOs of the companies like Chuck Runyon was on there, Anthony Geisler was on there, the folks from Solid Core, the folks from MindBody. We had Sean Johnson, the gold medalist gymnast, her husband, Andrew East. We had a lot of well-known influencers come on because they know it's not just about keeping gyms open. There is a true mental wellness uh, element here that, like I know for me, I go stir crazy. I go fucking nuts if I'm not working out on a regular basis. And I, I feel terrible about myself. The dopamine release isn't there. The, the neurotransmitters just don't fire the way they should. And so I don't think as quickly. And I know that's pervasive for people. And so Sean Merriman has actually been a great advocate for the mental wellness piece of it. And he's a pro bowler. He'll probably be a Hall of Fame linebacker once his name comes up on the ballot. And so it's getting a lot of support. I've emailed Tim Tebow a bunch of times. He hasn't reciprocated his love for me, but I'm still holding out hope. We I used to work with Tim when I was at D1 because he's a big part of D1, but he's got other things on his mind right now. So Tim, if you hear this, Open your fucking email, email me back, confirm that I can squat more than Will Bartholomew, the founder of D1, and let's get going on the Gyms Act. You can't heckle people on the podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sorry. But... <laughs> I, should, I should have gotten that disclaimer ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I can I can completely relate to you. I, I will literally make everyone around me insane if I'm not able to exercise. I think it's more therapy than anything for me. It's I need to get that 
nervous energy or that anxiety or whatever. I need to get the blood pumping. Otherwise, I'm just not going to be fun to be around. So Michael, you've had so much experience. You've worked for different brands. You're now with the biggest brand in fitness. How have you changed as a leader over these years and all this different experience? What would you say has been the biggest change that you've experienced personally? I get humbled all the time. There's so much that I don't know, whether it be specific to the industry, specific to working with, behind, or in front of other leaders. I am super bullish by nature. If you're into strength finders, command is in my top five. So I, whenever I say anything, I usually say it as though it's gospel, even if I'm questioning it. And so I've had to learn to listen a lot more. You know, I've talked about this on other podcasts. When I first came into Expo, I heard one narrative about here are key objectives you need to complete. And I didn't do the work necessary to get the relational deposits to effortlessly achieve them. And so I had to learn the hard way of, okay, you need to actually get people on your side. You're not just you're not just leading through compelling vision or charisma. You need to actually tie people in, get them on the same side of the table and lead collectively. Like I'm a big fan of Sean Acor. I think Sean, he's, if you, if your people haven't heard of him, he's a great uh, author, sociologist. He wrote The Happiness Advantage, Before Happiness, Better Together, or big potential rather. And he talks a lot about the collective performance of a team and how that can yield so much greater long-term results. And so it's continued to force me to be more team-oriented and less ego-oriented, which is really difficult for me because I like lead, I like moving quickly and whether you're with me or not. And that's something I've had to learn I need to slow down. I need to make sure people understand the moves we're making and that they are actually on board with it, even if they disagree with it. So that's been a big change. Thanks for highlighting that because I think it's amazing when I see people that are like, that's what I said. So that's what needs to be done. I, it reminds me of like when I was a kid and my mom would say, cause I said so. And automatically, Mm -hmm. even if it was a good idea or a good reason. You go against the green, you go against it, you just try to resist. And I do think that a part of being a leader is getting that buy-in from your team, making sure we're all moving in the same direction. Let me understand your perspective and hear why you disagree. And then I might continue to move forward still with my original idea, but you still feel like you were a part of the team, like you were heard. Nobody wants to just feel like they're just a rung stuck in one little lane. So when I first became president of D1, I hired a professional or an executive coach, Jason Jaggard. He's at Novus Global. He's one of the most brilliant people on the planet. He, his coaching legitimately pushed me into therapy because apparently I had a lot of unresolved issues. After six months, he's like, I can't help you anymore. You need to seek counseling. But one of the key things he highlighted for me, and there's this great book called The Three Laws of Performance. And the first law of performance is how a situation occurs to someone arises in language. And he kept dialing into the language I was using. Like, why don't they do what I asked them to do? I've told them to do this, but they're not doing it. 
and you don't realize the subtle ways an adversarial mindset actually creeps into your language as a leader, to your point a minute ago, and it's no longer you're on the same team. It's your team, which is really just you. And then it's everyone else because you haven't, you've now separated yourself from them and you're going, fuck, why won't they listen to me? Or why won't they do what I've asked them to do? And at that point, you've already lost it as a leader. Now you are a manager micromanaging tasks rather than a leader compelling people to execution. And so that was a really subtle nuance to look at the language and the way that I actually view the team, whether it was adversarial or collaborative. And that language takes practice, right? That's something that becomes a part of your vernacular. You have to change from they to we. And that's something that I also believe needs to happen with salespeople, right? That's the language that you're using. You can either use language that makes people feel included and they want to be a part of your fitness offering, your fitness membership, or whatever it is that make, you know, them, them excited, or you're using language. Like people don't even realize how many times they say the word I in a sentence. And sometimes even for myself, when I write an email, I read over it and I take out all the eyes and I'm like, we, because that <laughs> yep. it does take practice. It's repetition is the mother of mastery. And I think being mindful of, of your patterns is the first step to making those changes and correcting it. Oh, but it, it's, sure. it's hard work. Yeah, intentionality is discipline. It takes discipline. And I actually, I've got two kids. I've got a third on the way. My oldest is a girl. She's five. I talk to her a lot about discipline. And for her, we talk about it in the context of discipline is simply making one small positive decision after another. And because you create that into a habit and it ultimately fosters change. And every day we actually talk about discipline. And so to your point of changing the eyes to we's, you actually change your vernacular, your palate based on your discipline because discipline creates transformation and transformation usually creates additional options for you. There's a, one of the authors of the three laws of performance also wrote a book called tribal leadership. You'll find I'm, I read 30 to 50 books a year. I'm constantly, maybe it's my insecurity of, I know that I don't know everything and I want to know everything. Tribal leadership, you don't have to read the book, just read two chapters on stage three leadership and stage four leadership. Stage three leadership is the most common thinking in the world, whether you're a manager or just a uh, person on a team. It can be boiled down to this one thought of, I'm great, you're not, the reason I can't do my job or I'm not winning is because you're not doing your job. And it's this shift of responsibility to other people for your failure to execute. And if we can get past that, most people would find, even if they're just an entry-level employee, their level of influence and their opportunity for professional growth would skyrocket. You made such a good point. And it's if I made a decision and my team didn't agree with it and I moved forward with it anyway, and they didn't execute in the way that I wanted, it's my fault because I didn't get that buy-in. I didn't take that extra time. I imposed my will 
upon everyone else, I didn't lead the right way. So I think I really appreciate all the work that you put into being a great leader. I think that, and and I'm like that too, in that I want to constantly learn, but it does like you have to reflect and then apply. Just reading the books is not enough. It's actually mm-hmm. the practice. Cause I know some people they're like spitting out all these quotes all the time, but they don't actually live the lifestyle. It's just because you posted that quote on social media. I've seen you in action. You don't actually operate yeah. that way. <laughs> I, Smoke and mirrors. I hardly, I hardly ever post anything like that on social media just for fear of being called out for when I'm being duplicitous. I'm like, I swear to God, I I try and do this. and I'm just not perfect. <laughs> We're all a work in progress, people. So yeah. Michael, just last question. If there was one piece of advice that you can give people that are in the fitness industry that are leaders and and you have this tremendous background, both from a legal perspective, operational perspective, just so many years in the industry. What is that one piece of advice that you would share? It's twofold. One, the old Stephen Covey, start with the end in mind. And then the other part is be coachable. You need to think through, you don't need to think through where you want to end up when you're 30 years, 40 years out, but you need to think through where do I want to step to next? And then you need to be coachable in all aspects of your life. If you're not coachable, you're not going to be, you're going to be too brittle. You will have a hard time functioning in a team and you have a hard time absorbing any knowledge that is actually valuable to you and acting on it. Create your vision board. And as much as I hate the idea of vision boards, but write down, hey, in two years, this is where I want to be. So start with the end in mind and then actually be coachable in getting there. I love that. Yeah. Being coachable, being able to receive that positive and constructive feedback. It's not always so easy. Sometimes some of us are really good at giving it out, but not good at taking it. So if somebody- I'm terrible at taking it. (laughs) (laughs) Admittedly, I am as well, but I need it. So Michael, if somebody wants to connect with you, they want to learn more about Expo, where can they do that? Yeah. So for Expo, you can just go to exponential.com. No E in the front of Exponential. It's just X-P-O-N. E-N-T-I-A-L. If they want to connect with me, they can just email me at mike at exponential.com or ping me on LinkedIn. I do try and respond to everyone, even if they're pitching me something on LinkedIn. I was afforded a lot of great opportunities by really kind people. And so I I try and at least provide a dignified response, even if it goes no further than just the one response on LinkedIn. So you can find me there or just mike at exponential.com. Great. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Vanessa Severiano. I have a huge favor to ask of you. If you found value in this episode, I'd love it if you would please subscribe, review, and share this episode. It would really mean so much to me. I truly love connecting with fitness and wellness experts. So if you'd like to be on the show or are looking for help in your business, definitely drop me a line and connect with me. You can find me at hello at vanessaseveriano.com or my social media handles. Since my last name is not the easiest to spell, I'm going to go ahead and make it really easy for you and link my contact details in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode.